Well, welcome to Church in the Wild. And uh, it is so awesome, as it's been said many, many times by everybody who's up here, how great it is to be together again. It's been so long. Uh, I was uh, coming up to the, to the tent this morning to get set up, and I met my uh, Dutch brother over here, uh, Brendan Everts. He looks like my brother if I had a Dutch brother <laughs> with his beard and his crazy hair. And we kind of had a conversation about when we were going to cut our hair and we... And I said, uh, my friend said to me, when are you going to cut your hair? I said, I don't know, maybe I'll like wait until we're back downtown, in the middle of the city, no masks, this whole thing is behind us, and then to celebrate, I'll cut my hair. And so, not quite a Nazarene vow, because that would involve wine. And <laughs> let's face it, I'm not going to go that far. Um, but it's so good to uh, see everybody and be together. And I just want to commend you, before we go to God's Word, on uh, keeping the unity through the slog that has been uh, covid that there's been so many opportunities for the church to cease to exist along the way, and but we have managed to muscle through. I'm cognizant of the fact that uh, we, we all haven't been 100% on the same page in terms of how we've muscled through this together as a church, the decisions that we've needed to make as a leadership, but we've chosen to keep the unity despite all of the differing thoughts and ideas and, and uh, personal convictions on everything that's less important than Jesus to die on the hill that is the gospel. And so I just want to commend you uh, in that uh, as we continue to move forward and uh, continue to make an effort to be missional in this city and to preach Christ and Him crucified on Sunday mornings and that be uh, the reason we exist and that be the reason for our gathering. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, we we've, we've, uh, are enjoying this tent and I just need to let you know right off the bat that if you wake up on a Sunday morning and it is pouring rain, we are here. If you wake up in the morning and it's a hailstorm, here. Fire from the sky, here. You look out your window on Sunday morning and you see an asteroid coming toward Earth. Do not log into Zoom because I won't be at home on Zoom. I'll be right here. If it's raining sideways and the rain is coming in, I just need to be really clear that we're going to as much as is humanly possible in accordance with being in solidarity with the suffering of our city, we're moving forward. And so we're going to be under this tent. And uh, for those of you who need to continue to join us online, uh, then uh, you're, of course, welcome to do that. And if you need to do that, you're welcome to do that. I just need you to know, don't wonder if the weather is bad, what's going on. You dress for the weather and we're going to be here. And the absolute worst case scenario is that we don't set up any sound because we don't want to get electrocuted, but we will still be here under this tent and those musicians are still going to be singing and uh, we're going to be praising God and the sermon might be two seconds long so that we just eat and drink and celebrate together and go home soaking wet, but we're going to be here. So I just hope, have I been clear or have have I, I just want to Sometimes I mince my words. Okay. Our uh, text for this morning is Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue that study this morning as we explore the goodness of God's grace in that. Matthew chapter 5, the text is in your bulletins there. I'm going to be reading from verses 38 to 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and sinners do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's Word. Now, this morning, we're going to follow the, the pattern of, uh, that we've been using the last couple of weeks at, at looking at the depth of God's law and the renovating power of God's grace. Because really, that's what Jesus is up to in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Moses went up on a mountain and he delivered the law. And here Jesus is very intentionally going up back on a mountain, not just merely restating the law and delivering the law, but delivering the actual depth of the law. Because there was a lot of religious people that kind of felt like they were pulling it up. And so there's a purpose for which Jesus goes to the absolute depth of the law so that we can see the glorious heights of God's grace, our need for God's grace. So first we look at this. Before we ask what any scripture means to me, we can't just grab the Bible and say, what does this mean to me? The first question we've got to ask is, what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, how did Christ fulfill the essence of what it means? And now, how do I live in light of it? What does it mean to me? So first, let's look at, what does all of this mean? He uses, Jesus uses this phrase, an eye for an eye. And you find that in Exodus 21. And um, I'll put it to you this way. Why in the world did an eye for an eye become a part of the Mosaic Law? If your dog comes out of your house and it runs through your neighbor's garden and tramples the flowers, you don't burn their house down. That would not be equal retribution. Right? You might go and say, I'm so sorry, and, and pay for new flowers and pull the old ones out and go to the work of replanting the flowers. And you would, you would seek for there to be justice for the infraction, but you wouldn't burn the house down. In the ancient world, and the ancient world was, and I don't mean the ancient world uh, as is limited to the scope that we have in uh, the biblical narrative, but just the ancient world, history of the ancient world, was it was brutal. It, uh, it was a brutal time to live and try and seek true justice because everybody was essentially applying their own justice. And the ways in which the ancient world applied their own views of justice was radical retaliation. Not in all cases, but in some cases it just got extreme. If you didn't like that family and that family wronged you and one of their cattle came and, and trampled one of your animals, I mean, you might exact a reasonable justice, but if you had beef, no pun intended. Well, I just said that, so now you feel like the pun was intended, but I promise you it wasn't intended. If you had beef, the retribution was totally unjust. It was just radical vengeance. So the law was given to God's people to limit the, actual, the actions of civil government. An eye for an eye meant proper justice, not this radical vengeance in, in, in uh, that's what it meant, an eye for an eye. What it, what it was not supposed to be, which is what the religious leaders did, which is why Jesus is speaking to it, was it was, it was not supposed to be um, a justification for personal one-to-one relational retaliation. The law was never given to say, hey, here's how I want my people to act. Tit for tat, baby. Tit for tat. Somebody wrongs you, you wrong them right back. An eye for an eye. That was not the heart of God. That was never the heart of God. You get that from Genesis 3 on. What we deserved in the garden after our first parents sinned was retribution. What did we get? This radical grace. God moving forward to say, I will redeem. So an eye for an eye was meant to limit civil government retribution, not be licensed for personal retaliation. And so that's why Jesus goes on after this, that in the text to say, turn the other cheek. Now to turn the other cheek does not mean 
that we just subject ourselves to constant and ongoing abuse. does not mean that. Being a Christian does not mean, hey, just turn the other cheek and if somebody is abusing you, you know, physically, verbally, or otherwise, emotionally, sexually, just stay in that relationship because after all, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. It does not mean that. In the Hebrew culture, like many other cultures today, the cheek was an important part of the way in which they greeted each other. The cheek was offered. You would offer the cheek. To strike the cheek was a Hebrew idiom, not for being physically struck, though of course that could happen, but it didn't mean that. To, to, have your, to, to strike the cheek meant to demean and insult and degrade and belittle and make sure that when you were in a conversation with somebody, they, they felt shamed and small. You attacked their identity. You attacked the core of who they were. You, you struck them on the cheek. You find this uh, over and over. I'm just going to give you two examples. Lamentations chapter 3. Let him offer his cheek to the one who strikes and fills him with insults. Job chapter 16. Job, Job says, they scorn me with their mouths. They've struck me insolently on the cheek. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying we've got to re- we have to relate to that kind of an affront in a completely different way. You know, I, on my dad's side, the, fa- the family is Italian. And so when we go and visit the Italian side of my family, you come to the door, and there's Mario and his wife Mary, and there's my brother Stefano and his wife Boriana, and my sister Alessandra, and there's ten kisses on the way in, and ten kisses on the way out. You offer the cheek, and after they kiss the one cheek, you don't stop, or you're going to get one on the lips, you have to offer the other cheek. I mean, that's how the Italians are. Now, some of you aren't Italian, but you come from other cultures. It's the, same, it's the same kind of a thing. You offer the cheek. So what Jesus is saying is, to imitate our loving father of ridiculous, undeserved, scandalous grace, when you are insulted and belittled and somebody catches to the core of your identity and, there's a, and there is just venom coming your way, you respond in a way that invites a kiss. You're not destroyed at the core of who you are. Your sense of identity is not on such a hair trigger that the moment you are offended, there's just, just an eye for an eye, baby. Oh, you're going to insult me? I'm going to insult you. Are you going to de- belittle me? Are gonna de- oh, you're going to embarrass me in the board meeting? Right back at you. Oh, you're going to make me feel small in the cafeteria? Here's one for you. Oh, you're going to, oh, oh, that's how it's going to be? All right, all right, okay, all right. So Jesus is coming against this culture that had been created by the, the Pharisees of this sort of religious tit for tat. And he comes against it and he goes, Essentially, you're not even close to the depth of keeping God's law. You're checking boxes, but your hearts are not right. They're not in the right place. And so how do, I mean, how do we do this? How do we turn the other cheek? How do we respond in a way that invites the kiss? The way of love, the way of wisdom, the way of our God. I mean, how do we do that? Well, we can't do it unless we are secure in our identity. We can't do it unless we are really clear on who we are, and what Jesus is provoking us towards is not just staring in the mirror and being really clear on who we are, but really clear on whose we are. It's not enough to look in the mirror and go, oh, I know who I am. It's whose I am. See, that's why the next line, he pushes even further, and he says, it's by this that you're going to know that you're God's children. He calls them, calls them the sons of God. God's children, that we are, there is a resemblance to the Father. Because there is a, we don't have an insecure God. But there is a security that we have. But how do we have that? How do we become these secure people? How do we have that security in identity? A sense that we are loved and that uh, an affront can come to us and we're not easily moved by it. Let's, let's go further. He keeps on pushing this. Hey, so somebody steals your tunic. 
You know, the, the, the tunic was the inner garment, the thing closest to your skin. Somebody sues you for your underwear. And they sue you for the clothes off your back. It's demeaning and it's belittling. And, you know, don't let this kind of action derail you. Don't let that interaction define you. Hey, if somebody comes to you under Roman law and the Roman meets you in the street and he says under, under uh, you know, this uh, particular time in history of Roman military occupation, here's my bag. Carry it a mile. He just feels so small. He just feels so demeaned. Hey, slave, come here. Do my thing. He's like, carry it. Jesus is like, carry it too. You can't carry it too. If at the core of your identity, yo, yo, I feel belittled as a person. I, ah, my identity is threatened. I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm less than human. The way that I'm being treated right now. Jesus is poking at something very, very deep here. He's asking us to do something that's seemingly and humanly speaking impossible because there's supposed to be this, just this response of grace. It's like you can take that moment of belittling manipulation and just turn that into an act of love by carrying it two miles because it's like, you know, I'm carrying your sack because uh, under Roman rule, you can ask me to do this, but this doesn't actually define who I am as a person. I know who I am. I know I'm God's child. It's not, I'm even, it's not even enough to know who I am. I know whose I am. Uh, I can carry this bag two miles. The creator of the cosmos is my father. The creator of all things loves me, cares for me. He will re- renew all things. Judgment day is coming. P.S. You're not the judge. Uh, perfect retribution is coming. Not yours, his. I know that at the end of the day, I deserve that judgment and retribution, but by His grace, I won't get it. So I know who I am. I know I am loved. I can carry this bag two miles because that extra mile isn't demeaning who I am as a person because I'm basically dead already. I mean, Jesus is going so deep with this, which is why He crescendos this portion of the teaching into saying, love your enemy. Right? The law commanded you to love your neighbor, but in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, they added the opposite. The law didn't say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law just said, love your neighbor. And the, the religious leaders of the day, they had added this idea, oh, okay, well, if you're not my neighbor, then you're my enemy. So you can, you can, have, you can have venom and hatred and animosity towards everybody who's not in the group, everybody who's not in the club. It's logical. If you're not my neighbor, then you're my enemy. And... So what ended up happening was they ended up treating everybody outside the religious community as the enemy. You know, if you back up the train and ask yourself, if you read from, from, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, uh, what was God's plan for his people? His plan since Abraham was that the people of God, the quote-unquote religious community, I mean, the ancient world is religious, so that's a bad term, but what are, you just get what I'm saying. The people of God would be a blessing to everybody who was not the people of God. I mean, this was the plan. Now, they failed miserably at it, but that was God's heart, was we are the people of God. We are the ones who are blessed and chosen and loved in Him. And so we should be a blessing to everybody who's outside the, outside the church, outside the club. But the way that, by Jesus' day, how did the Pharisees relate to the Gentiles? Man, you uncircumcised Philistines, you guys are disgusting. Oh, Lord, thank God I'm not like this sinner. That was, this, that was how far they had come from the intention of the law. So as we consider all of this, right? Jesus is provoking us to see today here at Redeemer that we're not to create an us and them with our city. It's not, ah, here we are in Redeemer. We're the people of God. We're the ones living by the ethical standards of Christ. 
They're not. It's us against them, guys. It's us against Kitchener, Waterloo. And every time they get out of step with the ways of God, there should be hell to pay. That's not, we're not even, we're not even close. They are our neighbor. Every community in Kitchener, Waterloo is our neighbor. And our way of relating to them is not to condescend to their ethics. It is to love them despite the incongruency of our ethics. Right? Whether they're atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, LGBTQ community, pick a group. They're all our neighbors. And so our, our, our posture toward them is to be one of love, love your neighbor. It's not love your neighbor and hate everybody who's outside the Redeemer community and self-righteousness. So Jesus is provoking the, just the absolute depths of God's love, what's being asked. He goes on to say that if we can do that, love our neighbor, right? We are resembling our Father in heaven, right? In doing this, we are imitators of God. And how are we imitators of God? Because God loves his enemies. Who do you think God's in the business of saving? Who do you think we were before we got here? I mean, that's the reason why the Bible uses such offensive language. It's like, if you're not if you're not a worshiper of God, you're an enemy of God. And the first reaction of that, this is Romans, by the way, but if the first reaction of that is like, ooh, an enemy of God, I don't like that harsh language. If, if we don't love the one who created all things and we stand against him, we are, an, we are his enemy. So what does God do then? What has God been doing since Genesis 3 to his enemies? He has been moving heaven and earth in saving grace. To save us, his enemies. This is what God does. God never saved one friend. I mean, after Genesis 2, God had no friends. So Jesus is like, you got to love your enemy because that's what God is up to. Loving his enemies. Loving the people who are against him. Loving the people who are persecuting him. I mean, the cross is an exclamation point in all of this. We'll get to that at the end. And this is what he's calling us to do. To be these imitators of God. And so... In this, the question that we ought to ask ourselves as uh, the Redeemer community is, can we seek the good of those who may not be interested in our good? Can we seek the good of a city who's maybe indifferent to our good, maybe persecutes us for our our definitions of of good, of God's good? Can we seek the good of those who have no interest in our good? If That's why the text goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Everybody's doing the same thing. So we don't want to create an us and them situation. This last week, Susan and I had a meeting with the downtown Kitchener Community Center, which is where 100 years ago we planted this church. Okay? The year was 1905 when we planted Redeemer. And we, so we met with them last week, and we were talking about a return. And they were saying, oh, we, we, we miss you guys. We look forward to having you guys. And the reason we had the meeting was they invited us to the meeting. They said, we want to talk about post-COVID life and what are the needs of Kitchener and Waterloo and how can we serve those needs? And you guys are one of our partners and we appreciate the way you've partnered with the community center and we want to have a meeting. And I was like, we are at that meeting. I mean, that's why we exist as a church, to preach Christ and then love the city in practical ways. So we go to the meeting and they're asking us and they're taking notes during the meeting. You know, what's the, what's the vision of Redeemer? What are you guys passionate about? What are you all about? So I'm like, wow. So um, they didn't say, what must we do to be saved? But I just was like, I'll just explain it anyways in case <laughs> any of you are wondering the core. So I was like, look, I so saw, I said, I said, I'll get to this. The core uh, is this. And so after I preached the gospel and talked about the vision and how we want to care for the city, I talked about our work with St. John's, our constant work with the refu- supporting the refugees that are in Waterloo 
um, how we were able to deviate our rent towards caring for those refugees for months during COVID. And as I was having this conversation, they're taking notes because they're wanting to connect us with other practical needs in the city. And so, I, uh, so then uh, John Van Pelt called me to talk about this tent. So I saw the phone and said, excuse me, I just got to take this call real quick. I leave the room, I come back in. When I come back in, Susan's in a conversation with them about uh, the LGBTQ community. And you know, what is our posture towards th- th- these folks? And are we going to be caring and loving towards them? And I walk in and she's mid-conversation. And I mean, we all know, you guys know Susan by now. She's a great theologian and she's very, she loves, she, she was able to convey love and care for them and was like, come on in, everybody is welcome to be here. You know, and um, we uh, have different views from that community, but we love our neighbor. I mean, we love all of our neighbors. And so they, so they started to, to, to ask us some more questions about that. And they said, so what would it look like if they came to your church? And I just explained, I said, let me just pull this back. I said, this is a conversation about Waterloo Region being in unity and diversity, right? And they said, yes, it is. I said, okay, so if Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Jews and atheists and agnostics are all going to sit at the same table and work for the good of Kitchener-Waterloo, you can't ask that the Christian and the Muslim and the Jew and the Hindu and the atheist and the agnostic all check the same boxes. I said, we all are going to be checking lots of different boxes. I said, so we want, to, we want to be loving and caring to the LGBTQ community and every other community, but that does not mean that we're going to check all the boxes and have a common set of core values with all of these other communities. And I don't think you're going to have any success in Waterloo Region unifying people of different communities, those communities of which exist because of the fact that they have specific core values that conflict, we're not going to be successful in this kind of unity. So what I said to her, I said, what I teach the folks at our church is what the scriptures teach. And it is that the posture of the Christian community is to be one of love and grace towards everybody who's outside it, who disagrees with it. So I don't call our church into agreement with the views of all the other groups in the city. But I am supposed to, by the scriptures, call us to love and care for our neighbors in the city. That is, I believe, the core of what Jesus is getting at as he goes right down into the very depths of God's law. And he closes this whole passage by saying, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Bang! He's like, just in case there's any miscommunication Pharisees on how not close you are to this, you have fulfilled the law by being perfect. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, it can't perfect. You can't mean perfect. It probably means your best shot. It probably means just give God your best and he'll be happy with that. Paul, please look into the Greek. Tell us it means something else. I didn't have time to look into the Greek because I was making washroom signs this week, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> just kidding. I did look into the Greek and it's worse than you think. Okay. The word that Jesus uses for be perfect is the Greek word teleos, which the root word is telos, which is where we get telescope. And the point of a telescope is to aim intensely, focus intensely, and to get that thing to maximum strength, maximum focus. When Jesus says, be perfect as your father is perfect, be teleos, as your father is teleos, teleos means to arrive at, arrive at the final destination with nothing else left to be completed. You have focused upon it. You have fixated upon it. You have put full strength towards it. And you're complete and there's nothing lacking. So you notice that by this point, this would be a really good time in the sermon to shift from the, the, the requirements of God's law, the depth of his law, to the goodness of his grace. 
Because Jesus was not preaching this sermon to be a second Moses. They already had the second reading of the law. That's what Deuteronomy is. That's why if you've ever read from Genesis to Deuteronomy, you get to Deuteronomy and you're like, I kind of feel like I've read all this before. You have! Because the word Deuteronomy is is Greek for Deuteronomos. Nomos is the law. Deutero is second. Second reading of the law. So the reason we have the second reading of the law is they needed the second reading of the law because they botched the first reading of the law. So I promise you that Jesus is not standing on the mountain, delivering the Sermon on the Mount as the third reading of the law. That'd be divine overkill. He's like, you do not need a better reading of the law. You need someone who is going to come, aka me, and fulfill the law for you, keep the law for you, I will unite myself to you. I will give my spirit to you. I will rescue you, save you, give my perfect righteous record of perfect law keeping and impute it to you, accredit it to you. So that as you move forward, this law is no longer this crushing impossible standard for you. This is an inspiring guidance for you, for your life. Christ has kept it. Christ is keeping it. You and I are now faithfully called to align ourselves to it, bend our knee to it, look at ourselves in the mirror and repent of the ways in which we don't resemble it. Not with condemnation, but with great joy in our hearts because we are the children of God and because we will increasingly resemble our Father. Because the good news of the gospel is this, as I close. Not going to be two closings, I promise. As I close. You're like, he's yelling a lot. He's spitting a lot. He hasn't been live for a while. He's sweating like a pig. We're going to be here for a long time. <laughs> All right, this is the closing. If you've heard anything, you've got to please hear this. Jesus' perfect life, the good news of the gospel is that he kept this law. Jesus was struck on the cheek. Verbally, emotionally, literally. Jesus turned the other cheek. Jesus was stripped of his tunic, stripped naked and humiliated, Jesus was on the cross, praying for his enemies. He's being crucified. He's praying for those who are persecuting him. He's praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And he's keeping the law perfectly for you and I. We were the nails in his hands, and he loves us anyways. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ's perfect life, and his atoning death, and his divine resurrection, we have a new relationship with this law doesn't condemn us. It faithfully guides us. The Father planned to rescue you. The Son went to the cross to take your sin and accredit His perfect law-keeping for you. His Spirit indwells you. And so when we are insulted, belittled, patronized, when we are made to feel small, when the city persecutes us, okay, our most natural reaction... May it not be to strike on the cheek. May it not be to rescue our own egos. May it not be to defend our religious positions. May it be that we are not derailed and strike back. But may we, by God's great grace, look on the people outside this faith community. And may we look and posture ourselves towards them in tremendous love. May we love them as our neighbors. And in doing so... May they see our good works. May they glorify our Father in heaven. May we be bold to preach Christ. And by God's grace, may many of our neighbors call him Father. Let's pray.